The number one cause of death in these United States is the American diet. The coffee drinkers do tend to live longer. Are the orgasms causing people to live longer? Or the fact that you are healthier enables you to have better sexual function. More than half of our diet, like calorie, is junk. No wonder we have an obesity epidemic. No wonder we have a chronic disease epidemic. And a positive hormone therapy, including so-called bioidentical can improve menopausal symptoms, but at the cost of Welcome back, everyone, to Diary of an Empath. My next guest is Dr. Michael Greger. He's a renowned physician, best-selling author, an internationally recognized speaker, and has also appeared in the Netflix documentary, You Are What You Eat. His groundbreaking work has been pivotal in advocating for a plant-based diet to prevent and treat chronic diseases. He's also the author of the best-selling book, How Not to Age, where Dr. Greger explores the science-backed strategies to optimize our health as we age gracefully. Dr. Greger, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I hope to help inspire some of your viewers to live longer, better lives. And that is uh, something I think that we all have a very deep curiosity for. I would love to know for you, when you have to think about your work and your mission, how would you define that? Um, uh, the mission is really education and people have this sense that I'm out there trying to tell people what to eat, but no, I mean, look, it's your body, your choice. You want to go smoke cigarettes or go bungee diving, bungee jumping, uh, you know, not wear your seatbelt, uh, you know, disconnect your smoke alarms. You do you, right? <laughs> um, we're just, uh, you know, we, uh, it's up to each of us to mm -hmm. make our own decisions as to how to eat, um, and how to live. But we should make these choices consciously, educating ourselves about the predictable consequences of our actions. So that's what I see my role is, is just, you know, uh, saying, look, if you continue to do X, Y, and Z, these are the likely, um, uh, you know, consequences. And then, you know, depending on your life goals and what you want to do, then you can choose to, you know, continue to do what you're doing or change course. So what about you? Have you always been into a plant-based diet? Like, how did you get into this role of advocation? Because I feel like there's a lot of um, misinformation. There's also a lot of debate over carnivore versus plant-based, you know, so how did you get into this position? What's your belief system on it? And how did you get here? You know, it really all goes back to my grandmother. I was just a kid. <laughs> When my grandma was sent home in a wheelchair, basically to die, she was diagnosed with end-stage heart disease, already had so many bypass surgeries, basically run out of plumbing at some point, confined in a wheelchair, crushing chest pain. Her life was over at age 65. But then she heard about this guy, Nathan Pritikin, one of our early lifestyle medicine pioneers. And what happened next is actually detailed in Pritikin's biography. It talks about Francis Greger, my grandmother. They wheeled her in, and she walked out. Though she was given her medical death sentence at age 65, thanks to a healthy diet, was able to enjoy another 31 years on this planet um, uh, until age 96 to continue to enjoy her six grandkids, including me. So that's why I went into medicine. 
why I practice lifestyle medicine, why I started the website nutritionfacts.org, why I wrote the book How Not to Die, why all the proceeds from all my books are donated directly to charity. I just want to do for everyone's family what Pritikin did for my family. I feel like we have this, I don't know if it's just something like it's a survival me mechanism, but we all want to live longer. Why do you think there's this curiosity that everybody is striving to not only look younger, to live longer, to not age? What's the obsession with it? Do you think we're obsessed with wanting to live longer well, life? Because I, I, I see... Have you got to be obsessed with anything? I mean, I think obsession has this kind of negative connotation, but like mm -hmm. we should be obsessed for the health and well-being of ourselves and our family, right? If you're going to be obsessed about anything, um, how about, you know, because look, without health, what, you know, uh, regardless of what you want to do with your life, you know, how can you accomplish it if uh, you don't have your health? So that's the foundation. So of course, I mean, that's what, uh, I mean, that's what should, you know, if there was anything for which we should demand evidence. It should be for the most important decision we make every day in terms of health and longevity, which is our diet. This is according to the Global Burden of Disease Study, the largest study, uh, largest systemic analysis of risk factors for disease and disability in history, um, which found that the number one cause of death in these United States is the American diet. Bumping tobacco smoking to number two, cigarettes not only kill about a half million Americans every year, whereas our diet kills many more. So, you know, if, if, if it's the most important decision we make, well, then that's a decision for which we should demand evidence. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you're, you know, online buying a toaster or something, you know, some random opinion of some stranger leaving a review might actually be useful for you, mm -hmm. right? But, you know, you know, when I was in clinical practice and people come to me and be like, why do you exactly eat the way you do? And they're like, oh, you know, someone at the gym told me whatever. Or, you know, I saw this in some checkout aisle magazine or something. It's like, I mean, the most important decision of your life, I mean, in the very least, um, you know, that's we should, you know, demand, uh, you know, evidence. Like we're, it, we, none of us were born with this knowledge. So anytime someone, you know, tells you to, you know, uh, this is the best way to eat, be like, well, where, where do you get that from? Where did you learn that? What are your sources? And don't just tell me what the sources are. Show me the sources. Share with me your sources. I mean, that's why, you know, if you look at my videos on nutritionfacts.org, it's not me. I mean, it's just, it, here's the studies. Here's all the studies. Mm -hmm. Here's all the graphs. Here's all the charts. Here's all the conclusions. And then make up your own mind. Okay, so let's talk about diet because we have the carnivore versus plant-based community. I've struggled with this myself because I have been somebody who's been a weightlifter for a long time. Um, I have always been taught that we need protein, 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 protein. The best place to get protein is through meat. And I'm like, okay, as long as I eat um, lean chicken and lean fish and maybe like limit my red meat, I should be okay. So what does the data tell us about plant-based versus carnivore? Well, you know, the, you know, there's so much medical misinformation, so much garbage on the internet. Um, when it comes to these really highly charged issues that you really knew need to, um, I, at least in the, in the very first pass, see what is the consensus of the experts. So when you want to know, is climate change real? Is it not real? 
that's what the IPC is, IPCC is for. It's this, you know, kind of consensus of all the kind of climate scientists who've dedicated their life to studying it. And it's like, okay, well, you know, what, what do they say? Right. And so that's a good starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, well, David, uh, Dr. David Katz, who uh, head of the Yale's Prevention Research Center, saw all this crazy making online about diet and wanted to create kind of an IPCC for nutrition. So brought together literally hundreds of the top nutrition scientists in the world, like all the current and past chairs of the you know, Harvard's nutrition department, to agree on a consensus statement as to what is the healthiest diet for the human species. Um, and emphasizing that there's really a consensus, scientific consensus, going back decades as, the core, as to the core tenets of healthy eating and healthy living. And um, so the organization is called the True Health Initiative. You can go to truehealthinitiative.org and read what is the consensus statement for the best, healthiest human diet. Spoiler alert, it is a diet centered around whole, unprocessed plant foods. So if you were to pick like the top three or four things within that diet in terms of what we should absolutely be eating what would some of those be? Because I, I think there's a lot of information out there and it can be really confusing on like, what do I need to include in my diet to live oh, longer? Fantastic question. So that's actually what uh, uh, kind of the, part four of my book is the anti, mm-hmm. quote unquote, anti-aging eight, where I spe- we kind of highlight specific foods and behaviors, have the potential to offer really some of the kind of best opportunities to kind of slow the, the sands of time and improve longevity. Um, and so in terms of anti-aging foods, According to data from, again, the Global Burden of Disease Study, um, the largest life expectancy gains would be expected from eating more legumes, which are beans, split peas, chickpeas, and lentils. Um, This is the um, centerpiece um, of all the blue zones, diets, and histories, the areas of exceptional longevity where most people live um, over 100. Um, That is their preferred protein source, legumes. Um, this is presumed to be because legumes are the most concentrated source of prebiotics, the uh, resistant starch and, 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 and dietary fiber that feeds our good gut bugs, our so-called probiotics like acidophilus and bifidobacteria, so that they produce these byproducts, these so-called postbiotics called, like butyrate and acetate that then get absorbed through our colon wall into our bloodstream, circulate throughout our body, even cross the blood-brain barrier, decreasing inflammation, boosting immunity, and improving muscle strength. Uh, among frail individuals. So um, uh, if there's one thing we could do uh, to eat more of, it would be eat more legumes. So legumes for longevity, hummus for health, uh, mm-hmm. lentil soup, whatever it is. Um, so uh, legumes rule the roost on a kind of per-serving basis, though on an ounce-per-ounce basis, nuts actually are associated with the lowest risk of premature death uh, compared to any other food group. Um, so I end up recommending a palmful of walnuts a day, which are probably the healthiest nuts because of uh, how uh, how well they can improve artery function. Then dark green leafy vegetables are in their place, and the anti-aging aid is the vegetable most associated with a longer lifespan. The nitrates in greens are um, not just for improving athletic performance, like you know beet juice, etc., um, mm-hmm. but can also improve age-related declines in muscle and artery function. And slow our metabolic rate. You know, the candle burns half as bright, burns twice as long. But the only other way we can kind of slow our metabolism is severe caloric restriction. But instead of, you know, starving all the time, walking around starving all the time, we can just eat a big salad because the nitrates and dark green leafy vegetables 
um, slower metabolic rate. And then uh, if you're eating broccoli family vegetables, the cruciferous vegetables is a compound called sulforaphane, um, which can improve immune function and boost the detox enzymes in our liver and airways. Um, and then finally, in terms of just the, the best of the best foods that I, I'd want to highlight, berries earn their place as the fruit most associated with a longer lifespan. Um, I talk about the benefits of something called amla, which is dried Indian gooseberry powder, as well as these anthocyanin pigments, these bright, colorful pigments that make berries uh, the colors that they are, that uh, are thought to account for their benefits in terms of cognitive function, artery function, eyesight, inflammation, blood sugars, cholesterol. Um, though they do get cleared from our bloodstream within about six hours, so I encourage people to dose multiple times a day. So at every meal, you can have berries for dessert or drink hibiscus tea, those ruby red anthocyanins, mm. the same uh, uh, like red zinger tea um, uh, has hibiscus in it. Um, uh, and there's also savory sources of anthocyanins like red or purple cabbage um, or like purple sweet potatoes as a way mm -hmm. to keep ensuring these in our system. How do you think the like, OK, if we think of the typical American diet, you know, and I'm not saying that everybody out there is eating like this, but, you know, we think of the typical American diet, a lot of processed foods. What do you think that's doing to our aging process? Is it slowing down aging? Are we dying sooner? Oh, it's accelerating aging. We, and indeed are dying sooner. More than half of the calories on average in the United States are from these so-called ultra-processed foods, meaning more than half of our diets by calorie is junk. No wonder we have an obesity epidemic. No wonder we have a chronic disease epidemic. No wonder our longevity um, is down around 46th among nations, even though we spend more than anybody else on healthcare. So absolutely, um, uh, what we're eating, because we're just being absolutely bombarded by you know, ads for fast food and junk food. I mean, no wonder we're in the state we are. But, you know, it's important to recognize it's because we're living in a toxic food environment. Like, you know, like obesity is not some moral failing, right? The battle of the bulge is a battle against biology. We're just drowning in a sea of excess calories, bombarded by these ads for junk food and fast food. Becoming overweight is a normal, natural response to an abnormal, unnatural ubiquity of these fatty, sugary foods that are, you know, concentrated in calories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And it, it scares me because I also feel like it's become the norm in our society with the way that we're producing food and the mass amounts in order to keep up with the masses. And that's kind of been the norm. And one thing I was reading through your book and what really stood out to me was the optimal anti-aging regimen. Um, one thing that we, you know, we talked about the diet, but another thing that stood out to me was sleep and how does sleep affect our aging process? Because a lot of people don't, I think really, we really don't realize the impact that sleep has on us because we've been taught sleep when you die and ah. you know, you should just be working. So how does sleep affect our aging? Yeah. So uh, adults 65 and older are recommended to get seven to eight hours of sleep a night. Um, though the relationship between sleep and longevity is actually uncertain, but certainly uh, insomnia risk increases as we get older. I encourage people to stay away from sleeping pills like Ambien, which are surprisingly mm -hmm. ineffective and actually associated with significantly higher risk of premature death. Um, so what we can do is a combination of optimal sleep hygiene and conditioning, which I talk about in the book. Also warm showers or foot and body baths before bedtime, warm socks at night shown to help with sleep. 
Um, I don't recommend melatonin supplements because of contamination issues, um, but the melatonin-enriched foods such as kiwi fruit and tart cherries may also help people sleep better. So I'm wondering if you take somebody who maybe gets like quality eight, nine hours of sleep versus somebody who's sleeping, let's say five, six hours a night, do we have any data or what do you think would happen with somebody five hours versus eight hours? Does that significantly expose us to more diseases? Are we going to live significantly less if we don't sleep? How does that look? Um, it's uncertain about, uh, about the longevity, but we do know um, uh, uh, information on immune function. So if you take people just in that scenario, um, people getting um, uh, over seven hours of sleep versus five or less, and drip the common cold virus, rhinovirus, into their nose, this was done in a large study, um, then the people who are getting sufficient sleep actually are five times less likely to actually come down with the cold. Now, every single person in that study was infected, right? Because they literally had the virus dripped in their nose. But most of the people who were getting enough sleep didn't even notice. I mean, their immune system was so on guard, attacked the virus before it could even cause as much as a sniffle. Um, and uh, so, um, uh, unfortunately, it's unethical to do that study with more serious pathogens, such as influenza. Um, but it gives you a sense of the power of just literally a few hours of sleep difference in terms of how ready your immune, fun immune system is, particularly during this time of year, respiratory infection season. I'm trying so hard to improve on my sleep because I notice that when I don't get enough sleep, I don't function properly. I can't think straight. Um, I get brain fog. As a matter of fact, I got like five hours last night and my brain mm. fog today is like, oh, no. I, had to, I had to drink coffee in order to be able to function for today's episode. So let's, let's talk about coffee. So what do we know about coffee? Because I've heard mixed information on this. I've heard people say that coffee's great, it's healthy. And then some people say that it's not good for you. Where do you stand on coffee? And does it help us to live longer? Please tell me it does. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually, uh, you know, talk a lot about coffee in uh, my, uh, uh, in, in How Not to Die, for example, in my chapters on liver disease, depression, and Parkinson's. I talk about the benefits of coffee for the uh, liver, mind, and brain. Uh, coffee drinkers do tend to live longer lives, have lower rates of cancer overall, though uh, not for everybody. Coffee can worsen acid reflux disease, bone loss, and glaucoma. Otherwise, though, coffee is good for you, though every cup of coffee is a lost opportunity to drink something even healthier, green tea. So mm. three cups of coffee a day is associated with 13% lower risk of premature death. Uh, thanks to uh, the chlorogenic acid in coffee, the primary antioxidant, which boosts autophagy, this house cleaning process in our body, um, whereas green tea consumption is associated with twice the benefit, 26% lower of risk of premature mortality, though through a different mechanism. So potentially you get both benefits by drinking both throughout the day. So drink more green tea. Okay, I'm not ready to give up my coffee yet, but there's that's really good to know that there are some benefits to drinking coffee. So is it is it different if you add sugary sweeteners to the coffee versus if you're drinking the coffee black? 
Does that make uh, a difference? The most, the most important thing is what creamer one uses. So casein, which is a, a dairy milk protein, binds to the chlorogenic acid, binds to these polyphenols. And so it inhibits the bioavailability. So you just kind of flush it out of your system as opposed to getting it into your bloodstream. So milk also prevents the artery protective effects of tea, um, pre uh, prevents the bump in uh, <clears throat> Prevents the bump in antioxidants you get um, uh, eating dark chocolate. Um, prevents the antioxidant uh, improvement and antioxidant capacity in your bloodstream when you eat blueberries. Um, and so, as long so as long as you're not putting kind of dairy milk um, in your coffee, you should see those longevity benefits because you would get that autophagy activating compound into your system. Um, soy milk has been tested and has not had the same kind of binding effect. And the other plant milks are so low in protein, we would assume they wouldn't be a problem. Okay. That's good to know. Um, another thing that I noticed in your book that really stood out to me when we were talking about, you know, things that um, inhibit or not inhibit, but promote um, aging and that we can really live longer lives that was interesting to me was social connection, human connection. What is the role on our relationships and how does that help us to live longer? Yeah, so that's kind of part of that uh, that kind of optimal aging lifestyle was uh, social ties. So social isolation and loneliness have been associated with higher mortality rates. Um, for example, um, mortal um, marriage appears to carry a survival benefit, um, perhaps for that reason. But um, for people who are concerned about that, the good news is that the detrimental effects of social disconnection and bereavement may be mediated by refraining from substance abuse, alcohol, tobacco. Um, and so uh, this is actually very similar to stress. So increased stress is associated um, with premature mortality, but the effect is mediated through um, the lifestyle behavior. So when we're stressed, not only do we eat more, but we tend to eat more foods high, high in sugar and fat and calories. Uh, stress can also increase, you know, alcohol, tobacco, illicit drug use. Um, and so as long as we don't let the stress or the bereavement, loneliness affect our lifestyle, it should not um, impose a, uh, a discounting of our longevity. How do you think working from home has affected that? Because we have a big mm. shift after COVID and there's a good majority of people that are now working from home, having less social interactions, um, getting used to being alone. And for some of us introverts, that's like a dream come true. But if what you're saying is that social connections are needed in order to, or, or that they will help us to live longer, I wonder how working from home and COVID has affected that. What's your take so, on that? So, I mean, it really comes down to what effects is this having on lifestyle behavior? So if the fact that we're living at home means we don't walk in front of the walk past the donut shop every day, mm -hmm. then it's a good thing. Or if it's we're not sitting next to someone with a bowl of M&Ms on their desk, then that's a good thing. Um, uh, but if living at home means we are, you know, uh, clicking, you know, Instacart and Uber Eats or whatever, and bringing the absolute worst food into our house, then that's bad. If it's giving us more time to exercise because we're not commuting, then it's good. Um, uh, if it's, you know, if it's, you know, enabling us to have better control over our food environment so we can just have healthy food in the house, that's good. Um, it's really a matter of what is this doing um, to our lifestyle. And frankly, that's within our control.
right? Mm -hmm. um, so we can, you know, have an unhealthy food environment or not. In fact, we may have more control at home over our time, over what we put in our mouths. Um, and so it really could be an opportunity, it really could be an opportunity mm -hmm. to just kind of surround ourselves um, with healthy behavior. That's a good point. I think too, with COVID and a lot of people shifting to work from home, it has changed a lot of our lifestyles, but it really does require, I think, a little bit more intention because I noticed, and I'm a pretty in shape person, but I gained like 10 pounds and I'm like, this yeah. has never happened to me, but I'm like, okay, I'm not walking as much. I used to work in a hospital. I was always mm. up on my feet. And it makes me wonder how our environment impacts our aging versus maybe genetics. So how do we dif differentiate if, if it's just our genetics that's playing the role or is it our environment or is it both? Yeah, based on studies of identical twins, only about 25% of the difference in lifespan between individuals is determined by genetics. So for what we can do over the majority, which we have some control, we can look to the blue zones, these areas of exceptional longevity around the world where they have this social connection, stress reduction, movement, and they all center their diets without exception around whole healthy plant foods. So they're minimizing uh, processed foods and, you know, meat, dairy, sugar, egg, salt, and maximizing fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, you know, nuts and seeds, mushrooms, herbs, and spices, basically real food that grows out of the ground. These are our healthiest choices. Okay. So for someone like me who carries these <laughs> genetic predispositions to Alzheimer's, I, I have like two of the genes. So I'm more at risk, I guess. That makes me nervous. So, you know, are you saying that essentially my environment plays a bigger role than possibly my genetics? So can we turn off those genes? If I have these genes, can I change the fact or lower the risk of getting these long-term diseases that will therefore make me die sooner? Yes. Modifiable lifestyle factors outweigh the genetic component of Alzheimer's disease. Explaining, for example, the Nigerian paradox. In Nigeria, they have among the highest rates of the Alzheimer's gene, FOE4, but they have some of the lowest worldwide rates of Alzheimer's disease. How does that make any sense? Because genes load the gun, but lifestyle pulls the trigger. What does APOE do with the so-called Alzheimer's gene? It's the primary cholesterol carrier in the brain. Um, and so if you have low enough cholesterol levels, like they did in Nigeria, where they um, had diets low enough in, sat in, uh, in animal fat, um, as long as their cholesterol were low, then they did not manifest the uh, devastating consequences of this gene. In fact, APOE4 is the leading, uh, the most important gene for longevity, too, because um, it also contributes to heart disease because the average of uh, people with those two bad um, variants of the gene, for, you have a, a LDL cholesterol 40 points higher um, uh, than average. Uh, but switch people to a diet in uh, low in animal fat and you can erase that difference, that genetic difference. Um, and so uh, although there's a consensus that high blood cholesterol increases risk of Alzheimer's disease, having a, a total cholesterol 225 or more, um, increases the odds nearly 25 times of ending up with amyloid plaques in your brains 10 to 15 years later. But mm. cholesterol is a modifiable risk factor. There's something we can do about it by decreasing our intake of saturated fat, trans fats, and dietary cholesterol. 
You know, that's crazy because I always test my cholesterol is always higher than what it should be. And mm. I am a very healthy, what I consider healthy. You know, I high, high protein diet. I try to, you know, eat moderately. I don't go out to eat a lot. But for some reason, my cholesterol is always high. So that makes me super I, I think I need to be more conscientious about what I'm putting in my body and really paying attention to that in terms of like changing my lifestyle in order to be able to live longer. So how do we preserve our mind and our body? You know, we want to live, I want to live long. I want to, I think about Betty White. I'm like, yes, I want to be sound mind. I want to be independent. I want to be able to live in my own home. What are some things that we can do to make sure we live quality lives, not just living long to live long? Yeah, well, because Alzheimer's related to the atherosclerotic buildup of plaque in the brain arteries, uh, what's good for the heart is also good for our head. So normalizing blood pressures um, and cholesterol can help prevent cognitive decline. Aerobic exercise also important for improving um, brain function. And so, you know, you know, when you say you're on a high protein diet, um, it, it's really the, the, you know, since food is a package deal, it depends on where you're getting that protein from. And one of the reasons that plant protein sources are preferable is because of the baggage that comes along with the animal protein. So like food is a package deal. As much as, you know, Burger King says you can have it your way, right? You can't be like, yeah, I'd like the burger. I'd like the protein, the iron, you know, but hold the saturated fat, hold the cholesterol, <laughs> right? Um, and then, but like, what's the baggage that accompanies plant protein? Uh, many of the nutrients that Americans are lacking, right? You know, 97% of Americans don't even reach the recommended minimum daily intake of fiber. 98% um, of Americans are eating potassium deficient diets. Um, uh, and so, you know, most people are getting 60, 70% more protein than they actually need, whereas most of the dietary deficiencies that really plague Americans do the inadequate intake of nutrients concentrated in whole plant foods. Um, and so, you know, we kind of get the best of both worlds getting protein from plant sources because it has the, you know, what we'd expect. So something like legumes, you know, like beans has, you know, the iron zinc you'd, you'd uh, you know, associate with, you know, um, animal protein sources, but has the fiber and the folate, potassium and antioxidants and, you know, phytonutrients kind of as a bonus. That's why, you know, the USDA uh, considers legumes not only in the protein group, but also in the vegetable group um, because it has nutrients really um, in both categories. Mm, so eat more plants is really <laughs> what we need to do. The 11 pathways of aging and how to slow down each of them. What are some of the top ones? There's two in there that really stood out to me, but I'm curious to what your maybe top two in there or some that are really important that you would want people to take away from that. Yeah, so it's kind of like the 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 you know the the most promising pathways for slowing the sands of time, and I end each with kind of practical proposals for you know uh, treating them uh, you know targeting them naturally with diet and lifestyle changes. So we're talking about boosting the anti aging enzymes and hormones like AMPK, FGF twenty one, sirtuins, telomerase, while suppressing pro aging enzymes and hormones like uh, mTOR, IGF one. Decreasing glycation, inflammation, oxidation, senescence while preserving autophagy, our telomeres, slowing the epigenetic clock. I know these all kind of have these mm -hmm. sciencey sounding, you know, scientific terms. I really do try to break it down though into easily understandable, doable, practical takeaways. Um, uh, well, you know, one thing that I highlight in the talks of the talks I just was uh, uh, doing down in Florida. 
um, was I talk about autophagy, the kind of house cleaning process um, within our body that kind of clears away some of the cellular debris that builds up over time that may be contributing to the aging process. And we can boost autophagy by um, aerobic exercise, the 60 minutes at least of moderate intensity um, uh, exercise like brisk walking a day, 20 minutes does not move the needle. Um, water only fasting will do it, but it, uh, but it takes so long to ramp up. It's actually not safe to do, uh, medically unsupervised. Um, drinking coffee activates autophagy. Yes. Um, uh, oh, staying away from acrylamide, which is this toxin formed in the frying process. So staying away from French fries and potato chips, um, mm. can help preserve autophagy into old age and eating foods rich in spermidine, which is an autophagy activating compound. In fact, out of thousands, of uh, life-extending compounds out of the small subset with the fewest side effects, spermidine, associated with the largest lifespan extension, um, you know, extending lifespan of uh, laboratory animals like mice as much as 25%. Where is this anti-aging vitamin found? It's found in beans, most concentrated. Tempeh is actually has the highest uh, per serving, um, which is kind of a fermented soy food product. Number two, white button mushrooms. Um, the most concentrated source, though, is wheat germ with two and a half milligrams of spermidine, just the seven um, uh, in uh, just the seven grams in a tablespoon. Um, and so it's funny, my you know, mom used to give me wheat germ you know, back in the seventies, mm -hmm. and now mom was right all along. Yeah. I'm back eating wheat germ. I remember, I remember. I used to, I used to force myself to eat that. So maybe I need to add it back in. So when yeah, we're talking yeah. about like. So I want to ask you a couple questions about some supplements, because one thing for me, um, I don't, a lot of people may not know about like IGF, but I used to take a, a peptide and unfortunately I became allergic to it. So I couldn't take it. I really didn't notice much difference, but the, the concept behind it was to take this peptide in hopes that the pituitary gland would start increasing the IGF function or would start, you know, you can see the, the labs of the IGF going up. What is IGF? How does that affect us? Are there natural ways that we can up this number? And is it important? Uh, there are ways to up this number, but you don't want to up this number. IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1, is an age-accelerating, cancer-promoting growth hormone. In fact, all the longevity um, uh, the mutations, you know, in these, in the, you know, in, in, in families that have these longevity syndromes where they have extraordinary longevity, um, most of them are IGF-1, like, you know, Ashkenazi Jews, um, have, uh, have, uh, tendency to live longer because their IGF-1 doesn't work as well, um, uh, in the, in their body. It's cranked up by high protein diets, animal protein in particular, um, uh, which help explain the benefits of both protein restriction and shifting to plant protein sources in terms of longevity. So I'd recommend sticking with 0.8 grams per healthy kilogram body weight, which is the recommended um, protein mm -hmm. intake. Uh, translates to about, you know, I don't know, 45 grams for the average height woman, 55 grams for the average height man, and then choosing plant-based protein sources whenever possible with the explicit purpose of cutting down on IGF-1 in the body. Oh, my muscles are going to go away. <laughs> I think no, about that. Yeah, no, so, yeah. So that's, that's, that's actually a, uh, um, that, that's a misconception. Um, mm -hmm. people have the sense that IGF-1 is important for muscle growth, but if you look at people with, um, you know, uh, excess IGF-1 syndromes, they don't have, um, excessive muscle. You can randomize women to inject IGF-1 or placebo, see no improvement, um, mm -hmm. uh, with resistance training program, increasing muscle mass. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, and those with, um, Laurent syndrome, which is an IGF-1 deficiency disease are essentially cancer proof, no death from cancer. 
um, also decrease risk of diabetes and all sorts of other things. I mean, yeah. Interesting. Uh, I mean, there's just, you know, there's this kind of like weightlifting world, which is all about, mm -hmm. you know, that just is just, I mean, you know, you should realize that, you know, the, the, you should look at the average life expectancy of power lifters and realize you want nothing to do with that diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are dying. Uh, you always hear like cardiovascular dude died like at fifty five. Yeah, um, although the you know it's it, it not necessarily the diet, but the but some of these you know anabolic steroids can also yeah impact. What, a, but, what uh, about NAD? NAD supplements? How do you feel about that? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have a whole chapter on NAD. Though I encourage people to boost it naturally um, okay. rather than using supplements, just because the supplements don't work. They work in in rodents. Um, but unfortunately our, our body is way too smart to, to allow the blunt incursion of extra precursors, whether it's, um, uh, you know, NA, NAM, NMN, NR, NAD, NADH, NMNH, NRH, tryptophan, none of these actually affect tissue levels in people. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, so, but, uh, uh, the, uh, nat there are natural approaches that, that actually do work. Um, so we can do it two ways. We can um, uh, have our body make more um, by boosting NAD synthesizing enzymes or have our body use less by inhibiting excess NAD de degradation. So the natural approaches to boost NAD include um, amping NAMPT, which is the NAD synthesizing enzyme, through exercise. That actually works, actually increases NAD. Um, and then we can inhibit excess NAD degradation by suppressing the two NAD-consuming enzymes, PARP1 and uh, CD38, by reducing oxidation and inflammation, respectively. Okay. So essentially, just to break that down, exercise is really like the number one way to boost these NAD levels. And, and I would assume that it would help IGF as well and just overall functioning and immune system, et cetera. Because um, I was taking supplements and I just, I felt like the NAD supplement that I was taking, and I, I originally found it through uh, Blueprint and this this guy, Brian Johnson, who's okay. like this, he's like the guinea pig of, of anti, I'm sure you've heard of him, of anti-aging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how how much studies and data is with it, but I didn't notice a big difference other than the fact that it inhibited my sleep. So mm. I stopped taking it. Um, yeah. So I've seen mixed things on it. So what you're saying is exercise is really the best thing to boost NAD levels. Um, no, well, uh, that's one half of the equation. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, and the other half is decreasing excess NAD degradation by decreasing inflammation and oxidation within our body. And we do that by, you know, cutting down on pro-inflammatory food components like saturated fat and salt, increasing eating, going out of our way to eat anti-inflammatory foods, um, uh, such as, you know, beans, berries, greens, oats, flax seeds, you know, garlic, mm -hmm. ginger, chamomile tea, you know, these kind of things. So I have a whole chapter on inflammation, a whole chapter on oxidation. Um, so, yeah, so those three things um, can are the only ways that we can actually boost NAD levels in tissues in human beings mm -hmm. um, until we have, you know, and unfortunately, none of those are making profit for anybody. So you don't hear about those. But, mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, the yeah. science is the science. I'm gonna ask you a spicy question. Oh, so, I love spicy. <laughs> when I actually talk about capsaicin to the benefits of hot peppers for longevity. So different, different kind of spicy. Ah, so, right. <laughs> how does sex affect our aging process does it does having a, a good healthy sex life help us to live longer 
Oh my God, that's a fascinating. I actually have a whole section <laughs> in the book on that. And in fact, it's like how many years you get for how many orgasms. This was in men. But the problem is reverse causation. I mean, are men, are, are the orgasms causing people to live longer or the, longer and healthier? Or the fact that you are healthier enables you to have better sexual function. So sexual fun function in both men and women is tied to adequate blood flow. Um, and so, again, you know, what, what's good for the heart is basically good for the genitals. And you can randomize men and women um, to healthier diets and see significant improvement in sexual function, uh, perhaps due to the anti-inflammatory effects, perhaps due to the you know, blood vessel dilating compounds in certain fruits and vegetables like watermelon and beets, um, lower phthalate and BPA exposure from less processed foods. Um, I talk about improving sexual desire, improving erectile dysfunction, um, uh, you know, the genital urinary syndrome menopause, um, uh, you know, kind of on up and down the list. Oh, and, uh, you know, one thing that I start the chapter out with, which is something I never heard of, which I thought was fascinating, is that there's this distinctive body odor of the elderly due to this chemical we start producing as early as our 40s uh, called 2 which uh, has this unpleasant, grassy, greasy odor, which is caused by the oxidation of omega-7 fats that are increasingly exuded from our skin as we age. But we can cut this odor, this odor of, of the elderly, by eating plain white button mushrooms and by eating chlorophyll-rich, dark green leafy vegetables. And there's been the studies yes. showing this. I just thought that was fascinating. No, you know what's funny that because you say that, so I've worked in geriatrics. Uh, um, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. And so I've worked in geriatrics almost like my whole career. And I will say respectfully that there is a specific type of, you know, and you think like, oh, maybe the hygiene's different as you get older, maybe it's hormones, but I 100% know what you're talking about. I have smelled it and it is, it's very distinct. And that's, that's so interesting to know. You that. know, and you know, it's something I didn't even want to talk about until I actually found a solution. Because it's like, if it's just like, you you know, smell worse as you get older, there's nothing you can do about it. Well, that's kind of depressing. But then when I found that there's these simple foods that you can eat, I'm like, whoa, sign me up. And so that was, that was a fun, some fun section to write. Interesting. Okay. So when it comes to, um, we are talking about getting older, I'm mm. really curious to hear your take on this. What are your thoughts on um, hormone replacement therapy? Can it benefit us? Or does it do more harm than good? I know that there's very conflicting studies and maybe not enough data, but I'm just curious on what your take is on that. Menopausal hormone therapy, including so-called bioidentical hormones, can mm -hmm. improve menopausal symptoms and bone health, but at the cost of increased risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, breast cancer, fatal lung cancer, gallbladder disease, and blood clots. Um, though estrogen-only preparations um, in women without a uterus um, are, appear to be safer. Okay, that's good to know. What are your thoughts on like low-dose testosterone for women who stop producing it or who make really, really low amounts of it? Do you think that can be helpful? Like, I, I know there's not a lot of data for women. That's why it's it's hard, you know. No, well, so um, it has been shown to improve libidos, improved sexual desire in women, mm -hmm. but there's still no FDA-approved testosterone preparation for women. Um, so what they tend to do is they get a, kind of a male preparation, use kind of 10 times less. Um, but the reason there is no FDA-approved um, testosterone preparation is because 
the concern is that the uh, risks outweigh the benefits, which is what you see with, uh, in general, with testosterone supplementation in men, in men mm-hmm. as well. Okay. Um, I want to ask a question that's from an audience. I wanted to give my audience an opportunity to ask you a question. Um, so I'm not sure if, if you'll be able to answer this. Uh, she's hoping you will, and she's a big fan. So um, I, it's, I'm just going to read it verbatim, and we'll go from there. Okay, so here's the question. Does the dairy milk sources that involve cows, are they, um, let me start over. Do the dairy milk sources involve cows that are separated from their calves, repeatedly milk and exposed to, to distress before reaching grocery stores, contributing to the high depression rates? So I think what she's trying to ask is, how are the cows ethically treated? And if they're not, is it, do you think it's contributing to depression rates? Can that be oh. carried through the milk? Oh, interesting. Yeah, you know, there's the there's been a long concern about, you know, whether like the stress hormones at slaughter could like, you know, do something to the meat, right? And mm-hmm. so like if you um if they're more kind of humane slaughter methods, does that actually change either the quality of the meat or the, you know, kind of health impacts of the meat? Um and, but you know, I never heard that dairy thing. That's interesting. Well, so yeah, I mean, so dairy cattle um, are, I mean, you know, so dairy cows are mammals and mammals only produce milk when they're pregnant, right? I mean, when they're, when they, you know, so, um, the problem is, well, what do you do with the calves? Um, because that's our milk, right? I mean, that, that milk belongs on the shelves, right? So the calf can't drink it. Um, so, so you have to take the calf away from the mother, um, and give them kind of, you know, kind of cheap milk replacer. Um, and if they're male calves, then they just go veal industry. There are different genetics. So it's not even worth like growing them up for beef. Um, and, uh, and of course the female calves just go kind of back into the dairy system. Um, but that actually that separation from, of, of pulling a calf away and they have, you know, nine month practices similar to us. And so the calf is born and then they, you know, drag away the calf so we can get at the milk and these cows can be like you know, mooing piteously for days, you know, searching for their calf. I mean, it's really, I try, I, I grew up by, by a dairy farm um, uh, when I was younger. Um, and God, you could, you could just hear that and you just feel it, you know, oh, um, so uh, no, but okay. But does that, so the implications for human health, um, I don't know about the stress, but the fact that they are milked while pregnant um, so they, they inseminate them immediately to get them, uh, you know, in a constant kind of pregnancy cycle. So the fact that, um, you're milking cows while they're pregnant means they have these high levels of reproductive hormones in the milk itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can have, uh, that, um, may be one of the reasons why, you know, dairy consumption, increased risk of prostate cancer, for example, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, uh, uh, you know increases actually all cause mortality. So milk drinkers live shorter lives than non-milk drinkers. Though that's probably more of a, um, uh, due to something called galactose, which is a milk sugar um, breakdown product, um, than it, than it does with the either saturated fat or with the hormones. It's interesting. I, I think it makes sense, especially, you know, if we're talking like epigenetics and stress hormones and maybe how mm-hmm. that can affect our hormones as well. So, in the big grand scheme of things, with knowing all of the information that you've you've learned and, and the studies and all the data, 
If you had to pinpoint an age, if we were to follow these protocols and do everything that's in the book, what is the possibility of the age that you think that humans are capable of living up to? Oh, well, um, regardless of what our kind of genetic background is, whatever our potential is, what that's what diet and lifestyle do is maximize whatever kind of genetic potential we bring to the table. I mean, that's going to be different for different people, um, but it kind of maximize our improvement. So, um, uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, you know, getting to super centenarian status, meaning living to 110 is just as hard as getting to centenarian status. So it's, as few people live to be a hundred as hundred year olds live to be 110. So this dramatic exponential drop off, um, uh, the oldest, um, uh, and in fact, there's even, there's even, uh, some controversy about this particular case. Um, the oldest human being, um, appears to have lived only to the early 120s. Um, and so until we have some fundamental ways of changing the aging process, repairing some of that damage, um, which is not necessarily uh, pie in the sky. I mean, there's, there's, you know, I have a whole chapter talking about um, you know, the potential for, um, reversing, um, uh, uh, reversing the effects of aging. But until we have that kind of dramatic, um, uh, you know, really shift in our understanding in biotechnology, then, um, you know, uh, you know, 120 is kind of at the far limit. Um, uh, but again, um, that's a, a combination of a healthy lifestyle plus a, a kind of good genetic predisposition. What do you want people to take away from this book? You put a lot of effort into it. You clearly know your stuff. And so people who are reading it, what's, what's something that you really want them to take away from, from it? Uh, well, I mean, the most important message is really the good news that we have tremendous power over our health, destiny, and longevity. The vast majority of premature death and disability is preventable with a healthy enough diet and lifestyle. And one needn't make drastic changes. It's not all or nothing. Even just basic, common sense lifestyle behaviors can mean living a decade longer, not smoking, not being obese, regular exercise, more fruits and vegetables. And it's never too late. Never too late to start eating healthier. Never too late to stop smoking. Never too late to start moving. We really do have the power. Mm, I love that. Thank you, Dr. Greger, so much for your time, um, your energy, and and just what you're doing behind the scenes and your your care for human life and for wanting to make this world healthier and wanting to make humans healthier. I think that um, people like you are doing such amazing work. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I so appreciate it. And we're going to link every um, everyone to find you and your book. It's out now. Um, I, so I highly recommend all of you to go get the book, especially if you want to live longer. And he's authored many other books as well that are quite amazing. Is there anything else that you're working on that you want people to to know about or where they can find you so uh, all my uh, work is available free at nutritionfacts.org you can find uh, the book at your local public library next book will be on surviving cancer oh okay that's a good one i think and prevalent for most of us well uh, dr gregor thank you again you are absolutely welcome keep up the good work yourself